0: Hello and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined as always by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the Arpaio Pardon. And Richard, since the last time that you and I spoke, uh, President Trump has issued a pardon For Joe Arpaio, the famous or infamous, depending on your perspective, sheriff of Maricopa County, Arizona. That's Phoenix, Valley of the Sun. And Arpaio is a controversial figure, especially because of the way that he dealt with illegal immigrants during his tenure in office. He had been convicted here on a criminal contempt charge for refusing to follow a federal court order in a racial profiling case. We can get into more of the specifics of that. But let me just start you here with the basic question, Richard. Does this pass muster for you as a worthy use of the pardon
1: power? I think the answer to that question is clearly no. Uh, the pardon power is pretty absolute in the president, and when it says it has the power, it was meant to be a check on what it was that the courts could do in dealing with particular cases, and to the extent that you want it as a check on some other branch, it doesn't have external checks on its own. Uh, so if you've got a naked power like this, it's absolutely critical to figure out how you structure its application so as to not give the rise to credible charges that you yourself have abused your office. Uh, One of the best ways to do this is something that McCain and Flake, both senators from Arizona, said, which is you uh, allow all the charges on the merits uh, to be raised um, in the appeals process, but you don't short-circuit it by giving a pardon, which gives nobody a fair chance to see exactly the way in which the record would develop. And so I think, in effect, that it's just a horrible way in which to start to do business. Uh, Wall Street Journal had a recent editorial about it and says, yes, we know that Democrats flout laws, but this is a case in which uh, two wrongs don't make a right, and what you really want to do is to let this thing go through. If Arpaio has some serious defenses that he could raise, he's certainly entitled to do it. He may get a reversal in the Ninth Circuit, perhaps in the Supreme Court. From what I see, uh, that seems to be rather unlikely, Uh, but for Trump to do this struck me as essentially an effort to throw red meat to his base. It was announced in a Phoenix rally a couple of days ago, and I think that's the game that he's playing. I do not regard him as thinking of this as a serious, independent, deliberative process, and I criticize him very harshly uh, for corrupting the process in this particular fashion.
0: Does it strike you as reasonable that the framers gave this pretty expansive, I and mean, best I can tell, correct me if I'm wrong, but it doesn't seem like there's any real checks of the president's ability to use this power. Did they create too wide a berth for the executive branch here?
1: Well, this is one of these questions which is constantly debated, and I, I think the answer is probably not, but it's one that you have to say with a certain amount of diffidence. Let me first mention just a couple of things that are important about this. One is the only thing that the president can pardon you from are federal offenses. He can't pardon you from state offenses. That goes elsewhere. And when you have a state senator or a state sheriff in a place like Arizona, uh, the fact that he gets off from the federal charges doesn't mean that the state system can't go after him as well and so this is a case in which this sort of uh, absolute power given inside the president doesn't prevent the second branch of government from coming back uh, the second thing I think is that if you're going to say, okay, we don't like this absolute limit on what's going to be done, uh, the question is going to be, what are you going to put into its place? Uh, do you really want to say that the president can only pardon if he gets the consent of a majority or two-thirds of the Senate or of both houses, so you start to treat it like legislation? That makes things exceedingly complicated because there's now going to have to be a deliberative process that could take a good deal of time, and you certainly don't want the pardon to be proposed while one person is in the office of president, then have that person leave and have this thing dangling because it turns out that the Congress hasn't done anything, gets carried over to other sessions. So all in all, I think if you're trying to figure out a way in which you could balance it against something else as a constitutional matter, you always are faced with the question, is the current situation, which is less than ideal, worse than alternatives? Uh, The third point I think that one has to make about this, which is absolutely critical in a case like this, is that most presidents are acutely aware of just how controversial the exercise of the pardon power uh, turns out to be. And so what they do is they voluntarily constrain themselves. There is inside the uh, Justice Department an Office of Pardons with its own independent head and a large number of uh, staff attorneys. And what these people do is they create a mini-judicial process by which most patent pardon applications are going to be evaluated. And they get thousands upon thousands of these things, and what happens is somebody has to go through each of them, and by this particular point, it kind of looks as though it's an adjudicative process in which somebody starts to explain why it is that they think that the statute um, or the sentence that has been given has been too long or too harsh or incorrectly worded. Uh, Then sometimes they take the opinion of the Justice Department into account by way of rebuttal, given the fact that it has organized the process Execution. There's a huge amount of debate as to whether or not justice is the right department to comment on these things because it has a vested interest in making sure that its own uh, convictions are going to stand up. So maybe you want to get some other kind of independent party. I think for the most part this process tends to work fairly well, but a couple of years ago it was thought to be seriously understaffed and a former student of mine, Deborah Leff, actually resigned in protest because she didn't think she'd gotten enough support and wherewithal from the Obama administration to carry this. There is also, I think, a danger, which you have to guard against, of having pardons in only certain kinds of cases. And uh, so, for example, somebody says, well, we don't like crack cocaine, and you now give pardons to people who use crack cocaine, uh, but you don't look at any other kind of drug offenses. That strikes me as being kind of dicey, uh, but there's absolutely nothing whatsoever to prevent the president from doing that, and Obama, to some extent, did that. Uh, But the thing that makes this case so uh, troublesome is he completely, that is, Trump bypassed, this particular office and what it tends to bring back to mind is the kind of situation that you had with Mark Rich in the closing days of the uh, Clinton administration where a pardon was given to somebody who was thought to have uh, was thought to have all sorts of um, uh, political connections to the administration and that itself was I think very uneasy so um, as with all institutional arrangements you're never going to get them exactly right it takes a certain degree of good common sense, civility, customs, practice, comedy, and so forth. And of course, one of the things that's so troublesome about Trump is he thinks that any custom that he didn't create is worth destroying. And so he kind of takes pride in the fact that he pushes this thing to the limit, which then leads to questions like the ones that you just gave to me, where I give an answer saying, I think that this bad part of the overall situation is all things considered something you have to live with even with a president like Trump, because the alternative is worse.
0: So you've got a scenario like this. You've got a scenario like Mark Rich, which you mentioned a moment ago. Another one that we haven't discussed is uh, Oscar Lopez Rivera, who was the Puerto Rican nationalist who was pardoned by President Obama. We've got sort of clear instances that we can point to of uh, periods in history where it looked as if presidents were really overreaching where this is concerned. Cutting the other way, are there specific cases or even general principles that we can point to as a guide for the appropriate use of the pardon power?
1: Um, yeah, I think you can certainly do so. I mean, remember the case of Olivia, I think, is a perfectly good example of how this thing starts to work. Uh, what you do is you have somebody who is convicted or under sort of very dubious circumstances having to do with the question of whether or not he gave truthful answers to an investigation that was in, conducted by a special prosecutor. Um, in my view, this thing was a complete mistake from start to finish because the person, Fitzpatrick, or Fitzgerald rather, who asked the particular question already knew what the actual answers were, so it was just an intent to entice into trap. Uh, what Bush did was to commute the future center going forward uh, but he did absolutely nothing to sort of reverse that particular conviction uh, so that was a case I think in which the pardon turned out to be um, too timid now to give you another case which you haven't mentioned but should be on everybody's mind is what arguably caused Gerald Ford his re-election in 1980 was his decision when he took office after or rather 1976 is that when he took office after Nixon had essentially resigned he issued a complete pardon to Nixon for all federal charges and when many people thought that the appropriate thing was to allow the process to go through I don't think he had any of the partisan political advantages associated with Trump and the sheriff in this particular case. But it was, of course, a very difficult decision to make because in that case, the evidence was overwhelming that Nixon had committed some kind of a serious crime uh, with respect to the cover-up. And what you're doing now is you're not letting this thing go through the judicial process. Ford's explanation was very different, I think, from Trump's. He thought that having uh, presidential... Trial um, after the resignation would create such enormous distractions and would make it so difficult to do the ordinary course of business that in his better judgment he thought it was better to let the man off than to have people go in this particular fashion. That's again a very close call and I think the verdict of history, I use the words in quotation, was that he moved a bit too fast and a bit too furiously in this direction and so uh, when the question for re-election came up in 1976, he lost and I think virtually everybody who looked at it said that this was one of the things that actually did him in so there are cases of course where pardons become high politics uh, for better for worse and my guess is that no matter what Ford have done he would have taken a great deal of flack and it may have been the fact that Nixon was forced to resign uh, was itself sealing his doom no matter what particular course of action Ford decided to take afterwards.
0: Let me get your reaction to a theory that's been making the rounds in the days since this pardon was announced. There's a law professor at the University of Missouri by the name of Frank Bowman who has been arguing that this pardon from President Trump constitutes an impeachable offense. Now, that's obviously, that's an outlier in terms of the diagnosis, but I want to get your reaction to the rationale. This is what he's written. Article 2, Section 2 of the Constitution gives a president effectively unlimited power to pardon anyone, possibly even including himself. Uh, but he says that this pardon violates the due process clause of the Constitution. I'm quoting him here again because the only effective redress for those whose rights were violated by then Sheriff Arpaio when it defied the court's injunction is a contempt sanction. And voiding that sanction with a pardon both nesters, I'm sorry, both uh, hampers the judicial power to enforce constitutional rights and deprives Arpaio's victims of relief. How do you react to that analysis, Richard?
1: Well, my general view about that is it's highly ingenious and completely incorrect. I mean, (laughs) if you start to look at the situation, you're talking about the Due Process Clause uh, that is located inside the Fifth Amendment, which has been around since 1791, and there's never been anybody who actually thought that there was any tension with respect to it. What the clause says is no person shall be uh, punished or deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. A pardon does not deprive anybody of life, liberty, your property without due process of law. And so therefore, essentially, what you do is you're completely inverting the situation. The due process clause is designed to make sure that convictions don't take place with undue haste. And yet at the same time, uh, the pardon clause is designed to say that if in fact these things have gone through, uh, the president has an extra corrective to take care of the spirit of the mob or something else. And so I don't think that there's any particular convention for this. Uh, the point about whether or not this is something which affects offends the victims, I think the answer is it surely does. I mean, if I were a victim of Sheriff Joe or anybody else who committed some systematic offense, especially those based upon race and national origin, I would be absolutely appalled if the president exercised that particular power. But I don't think that the protests of people who are victims are in some cases, but not in all cases, going to be sufficient to upset the way in which the particular argument goes. So I think the correct way in which to look at this particular thing is relatively simple. What you do is you have an imperfect set of constitutional institutions. There's no obvious improvement that you could make. The last thing that you want to do when you have this is to let ad hoc judicial intervention into a non-judiciable process. I'll completely throw up the constitutional balance because it is not wise to essentially say one particular pardon of one particular man is going to be so important that you're willing to upset a constitutional structure when you have no idea what you're going to put in its place thereafter. Uh, so like in so many bad situations, we're going to have to endure a President Trump. He will break every known social convention, but so long as he does not break the law, it seems to me that grin and bear it is the appropriate response privately and publicly it's to launch a strong barrage of opinion against him uh, so as to reduce the likelihood that something like this will happen again with somebody else and there's also another element in this which I don't know what the statute of limitations is I don't know what the changes in fortune are going to be but if there are other offenses that have not yet been brought against, or charges that have been brought against a pile presumably those would not be covered by this particular pardon although Lord knows how broadly this thing was, was done so I think that this is a high- highly unsatisfactory episode in the history of of the United States. I think the president should be castigated for his particular decision and for the arrogance with which he has announced, uh, announced it, but I don't think that legally we should try to do something, because sometimes the best thing you could do when there's a bad situation is not to make it worse.
0: One of the criticisms of Arpaio was that he went out of his way to get national media attention for the way that he did his job, that, that he was a bit of a showboat. And, and under this line of thinking, there's a pretty clear explanation for why, which is it helped him to develop a national financial base when he would run for reelection. Pe- people sometimes forget that in the vast majority of cases across the United States, sheriffs are elected officials, which is obviously a contrast with most other law enforcement positions, and you are sort of seeing – a slow rise in the number of kind of political activist sheriffs. Does that arrangement, having them elected, make sense to you, or are you put off by the danger that it can make some of these guys a little too political?
1: Well I think it surely does and it's also outside money is always a big feature and there's no question that Sheriff Joe certainly did this but you know, Maricopa County is a pretty big place with uh, 4 million people and it's also a hotbed for controversy given the fact that it's so close to the Mexican border but again you have exactly the same kind of problem I don't like elected sheriffs but I don't like appointed sheriffs either who can be completely immune from all sorts of political protests uh, what I think I'm going to stress it again I think it's probably with the final force of the day. One of the things that we know about institutions is that, by definition, they are always imperfect. If you want to guard against one particular element, which is popular sentiment, um, well, you could have an appointment. But if you want to guard against the arbitrary um, decisions of a single official, then you have to have some kind of a more elaborative process. No matter where you go and no matter where you look, appointments have always been a sore point. You could spend a long time talking about how difficult it is to decide whether you want to appoint or to elect judges, and if you appoint them, what kind of preliminary processes could be imposed on the various people that are involved. There are huge questions of who can be appointed to various kinds of agencies under the Appointments Clause of the United States Constitution. Uh, Again, you can't solve all of these things. I think for the most part you stick with the text and the custom rather than having these wild innovations and that you hope you could get elected officials in place and political pressure upon these people to prevent a uneasy system from becoming a terrible one and that's one of the things i so dislike about trump in this particular case he was proud to flaunt a series of very elaborate traditions uh, the difference between him and clinton is clinton did it the last day and knew he could slink out of office whereas somebody like trump is actually trying to use this to rally his base i will leave it to wiser minds than mine to figure out which of these two particular motives is the more deplorable
0: all right, thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting defining ideas at hoover dot org. You can also follow him on Twitter. That's at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover dot org.